Okay. Cool. All right. That's good. Thank you. Yeah. Appreciate that. All right. It's good to see everybody enjoying talking uh, and fellowshipping with one another. It's one of the main purposes of a church is the community, sharing life with people, doing life with people, uh, and, and it's great to see that. Um, due to the circumstances today that we referenced earlier about Dan being in the ER and be, being at home resting, um, I wanted to talk about something that's, that's really been weighing on my heart since I was there talking to him and we were talking about what this means in his life and, and, and what it means to, to find rest and, and to find peace. And so these are, these are thoughts. Uh, a passage of scripture came immediately to mind as I was thinking about this. And, and, and these are thoughts and, and a sermonette, I guess you would say, that um, I wrote yesterday to hope try to communicate something from God's word to us that I think is applicable to all of us at some point in life. Uh, we were going to start the book of Ruth today. Dan had a great sermon on that uh, that was ready. <laughs> Uh, but we're going to postpone Ruth for a while. We were going to spend eight weeks in the book of Ruth. Uh, I was really excited about how that sermon series was coming together. We're all going to enjoy it, um, but God has a plan for us to, to put that off for a couple weeks. So uh, as, as we start, uh, let, let's pray. Uh, Father, uh, we come before you and, and here to open your word and to, and to learn and to focus on what you would have us to do to live to be more like you. Lord, I feel vastly underprepared. I pray that your word would speak uh, in spite of the fumbling and thoughts that, that I wrote down. I pray that people would forget and look past what I say, but look towards your word and the eternal truths of your word, uh, which will endure forever. Um, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I really, this morning I want to talk about peace. And when you hear the word peace, probably the first thing that your mind goes to, just like mine, is all the turmoil and chaos and, and problems that you see on the news. And we see everyone clamoring for world peace. And no matter how old you are, if you're very young, if you're on the older end of things, I know my entire life, that people have been striving for and talking about how to obtain world peace. And so no matter our age, that's probably been something that we've grown up doing. I remember as a little kid in, in elementary school singing, let there be peace on earth and, and let it begin with me. I don't know if they still sing that. Maybe some of y'all that are about my age remember that thing. Or you think about the commercials of, oh, how do we have peace? Well, you give somebody a Coca-Cola, you know, and if that's all it took, we'll go for Coca-Cola, which is better than Pepsi anyway. Um, so I, I, I heard this stat once and I looked it up and this is from the New York Times. And war, as they define it, is an active conflict that has claimed more than 1,000 lives. And over the past 3,400 years, Humans have been entirely at peace for only 268 of them, or just 8% of recorded human history. And at least 108 million people were killed in wars in just the 20th century. And so just turning on the news, which I can hardly stand to do anymore, it just makes you sick seeing everything that's going on, the, the injustice, the massacres, the slaughters, the wars, 
the, the hurricanes, all these things that are going on that we just know shouldn't be happening. And for centuries, we've, we've tried every method that we know of to obtain peace. And you look all the way back into the B.C. era, where there was the Assyrian Empire, followed by the Babylonians, followed by the Greeks, and then the Romans took over. And then we have the great Pax Romana, the Roman peace that took place in 27 B.C., which didn't last all that long. And then we looked at religion. Okay, religion is going to bring peace, institutionalized religion. Well, that ended up being further causing problems with, with the Crusades. And then we thought, okay, the Reformation, we're going to have strong state government, and church ties. And that's the way to do it. Or we're going to separate, and we're going to come over to New England, and we're going to create a new Zion over here. And that didn't work. Well, then, okay, it's, religion's not the problem. We need to push religion to the side, and we're going to have philosophy through the Enlightenment. And man is going to be the one to push things forward through their advances. Now we've ended up with postmodern thought, where we've rejected sources of authority science and all these things that led us down into nuclear war and all these things and we're rejecting the external source of authority of religion and it's up to you as the individual to find your way to peace and yet none of us in this world have any peace i found this quote from the inaugural ceremony of a world famous structure that i visited and i, th I think it's very telling and it's beyond the compelling need to make this a monument to world peace this should, because of its importance, become a living representation of man's belief in humanity, his need for individual dignity, his beliefs in the cooperation of men, and through this cooperation, his ability to find greatness. Now, think about what structure that might be. We're going to come back to it. And if you want to jot it down or just hold in your mind what structure that is, we'll talk about that later. But what I really found was that was a boastful display of man's ability to find peace. Now, we know biblically that global peace will never be attained due to sin and the nature of the fall. And the effects of the fall of man uh, will still be in effect until the return of Jesus Christ to the earth. We know that peace between individuals and society and even various facets of life is also at times seems unattainable. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try for peace. Romans 12.18 tells us, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Paul is telling us that we should seek peace and promote peace wherever we find it. As Christians, we should be people of peace. So we have the command and the duty as believers to do so. Maybe that means not pushing our own agenda or demanding our own way. Maybe it means giving up our preferences to someone else. And maybe it even means asking in this day and age, is this really worth a fight? But peace goes beyond the global, national, and local state scale. It delves much deeper into each one of us. It's something that we feel and long for at our core. A lack of peace is what keeps us up at night. It's what nags at us during the day. It's what causes fights amongst friends and family. And at times it makes us even feel physically ill. We are anxious, depressed, and even angry. Each one of us have ways that we cope with a lack of peace, and it looks different for each one of us. For some, it's just getting away from people. I, I don't want to be around somebody right now. For some, it's turning to alcohol, drugs, sex, other things to fulfill that. Eating too much food, not eating enough food, shopping, whatever hobbies and so forth. We have a go-to way in which each one of us try to find our peace. But I just want us to be real with each other this morning. We're sitting here in church, and we all know the right answer that we're supposed to give when we say, all right, how do we find peace? 
and we'd all say the spiritual answer. We're supposed to pray, we're supposed to read our Bible, and we're supposed to trust God. But I would postulate this morning that we don't do that very often. We may pray a quick prayer, we'll quote a quick verse of, I can do all things through Christ that strengthens me. We'll give ourselves a little spiritual pep talk to get out of the situation that we find ourselves in. And that might even be enough to get us to the next calm scenario. But do we ever truly find ourselves at rest? I would argue that we live our lives walking a very fine line from finding a place of peace to trying to find the next place of peace without tripping and falling. And it's exhausting. Maybe we never land on peace. Answer this honestly to yourself right now. Are you spiritually at rest? Because to be quite honest, I've been in churches for all 38 years of my life, and the answer for most people is no. Unfortunately, churches are some of the least restful places on earth. It's the number one reason why so many have left the church. If you ask people why, they'll cite some of the common reasons of hypocrisy, gossip, and legalism. I truly believe those reasons because I've personally experienced them. But at the root of all those are pride and selfishness, either on the side of the church or on the side of the individual. The body of Christ, the church, that is to be a refuge to hurting and broken people, is unfortunately that can be a place of harm. I would say that churches don't have peace because they don't know what peace looks like or how to truly live in peace. We often have a very big view of ourselves and a very small view of God and his mission for us. We'll reference Psalm 23 throughout, and that's the reason I had Tori read that this morning. But when the Bible uses the metaphor of sheep, it certainly picks a good one. And it's not because of the agrarian lifestyle of the day. It's just because sheep are plain dumb. Uh, My mom grew up on a sheep ranch in California, and she's got plenty of stories about how dumb sheep are. They're adorable. She carried some around as little lambs and, and fed them from a bottle. But overall, sheep were, were really dumb. They had to keep them from getting their heads caught in between the little gate and the fence and such. They need to be herded. They need to be led in the right direction because they will often go off in another direction that is harmful for them. I'd like to pro- propose an equation or a formula for peace this morning. There are very famous roadmaps to peace and things that we've seen celebrated throughout the last hundred years for major conflicts. But this formula, this equation, is one that I think, based on Philippians 4, 5 through 7, will give peace. And the equation this morning is presence plus prayer equals peace. Presence plus prayer equals peace. If you all want to look at this, it's not printed in your bulletin. What's printed in your bulletin is, is Ruth. Um, but this is the passage we're going to look at this morning. It's very well known. Some of y'all may be able to quote it, but I want us to look at it with fresh eyes this morning. And I'm going to start in Philippians 4, the second half of verse 5. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The first part of that equation, the presence. If you look in your Bible, there's an artificial division at verse 5. The first part is, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. And that part ends with a period. And then it says, the Lord is at hand, which ends with a semicolon. 
So by the rules of grammar, what comes after the Lord is at hand completes the thought of the Lord is at hand. So what does the Lord is at hand mean? Well, if you look at other ways to translate this and what this is in the Greek, it means the Lord is near. And in this case, nearness means physical presence. I remember when I had a nightmare or thought something was under my bed or in my closet when I was growing up. And like many of you, when you woke up and you were scared, I called for my dad. And so my dad would come to my room and ask me what's wrong and would humor me by looking in the closet and showing me that there wasn't anything there or there wasn't anything under my bed. And sometimes he would sleep on the floor or he'd get into one of the bunk beds that I had and would, and would sleep there with me because just his physical presence being there comforted me. Now, I look back on that and I say, well, that's really stupid because an unprepared, unarmed man couldn't really take on a monster. So it's, it's ridiculous. But in my childish mind, it made sense. But in the same way, when we call on God, he's there, but yet he's there even before we do call on him. In Psalm 73, 28, the nearness of my God is good. Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. Psalm 75, 1, we give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your name is near. Psalm 119, 151, but you are near, O Lord. Psalm 145, 18, the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. Now, we talk about God's many attributes. We talk about his love, his holiness, his faithfulness, his omnipresence, his omnipotence, his omniscience. We talk about his transcendence and how he's above everything. But one of the attributes of God is also his nearness. And we don't call it God's nearness, because if you look it up in a theological textbook, what you'll find is it's called God's eminence. I-M-M-A-N-E-N-C-E. And we look at this and say, okay, how can a God who's transcendent, who's above everything, also be near? But that's one of the great things about God. The psalmist and the prophets, uh, and we read from the psalms, often reminded the people of God's nearness. Sometimes in the sense of, of his coming judgment, the Lord's at hand, so well, you need to get right. But most often, it's used in the reference to his compassion and care of his people. When trouble comes, we need to go back to foundation. And I love sports. I'm having a horrible time this year with the Razorbacks. And when things go bad, what do the coaches do? They go back to the fundamentals. They go back to the basics. And it's the same thing in the Christian life. When we have trouble, we need to go back to our foundation and our fundamentals. You'll hear me say this almost any time I talk, but it's this quote from A.W. Tozer, and I love it and I firmly believe it, is that what a man thinks about when he thinks about God is the single most important thing about him. When our view of God is too small, we live our lives that reflect that. We have a weak foundation that's ready to crumble at any moment. John MacArthur writes, weak, struggling, unstable Christians need to build their strength on the foundation of what the Bible says about God. The result of the church's failure to equip believers with the knowledge of God's character and works is a lack of understanding of his nature and purposes and a subsequent lack of confidence in him. The shifting sands of shallow or faulty theology provide no stable footing for the believer. Anxious, fretful, worried, harried believers are inherently unstable and vulnerable to trials and temptations. Have you ever tried to not be anxious about something? 
it often doesn't work. And in fact, many times you end up being more anxious about the fact that you are anxious. So it, it often doesn't work. But God gives us the directive there in verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything because he's already given us the promise of his presence right before. So God is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. Now, I know some of you may be thinking that I'm de-emphasizing the role of, of mental health and anxiety disorders and things like that. And in fact, far from it. Uh, in medical school, I spent three months um, on a psychiatry rotation, and I saw firsthand the realness and the, and, and the effect that that can have on people. And I hate growing up in a church that stigmatized people with mental illness and things that needed treatment and help. So don't think when I'm talking about anxiety, I'm saying all anxiety can be cured by just trusting God without getting mental help that people may need. But for the, our day-to-day -day anxiety, the things that we struggle with, the things that we worry about, we have the first part of the equation for peace, and that's God's presence. Now, how do we experience God's presence in the nearness of God? How do we take this from an abstract thing that we think about, an attribute of God, and make it something that's applicable to our lives and something that we can actually do? Well, Psalm 46.10 tells us, Be still and know that I am God. We are a completely restless people. Um, how many seconds can you go sitting around without fidgeting with your phone? For me, it's not often. I'll be watching TV, I'll be doing something on my phone, I'll set my phone down, and then it's like, okay, I gotta grab my phone again and, and do something else. Um, our brains have been rewired in this day that we need constant stimulation. We need to always be doing something. The church has always emphasized spiritual disciplines. And if you read old books on spiritual disciplines, they always put them in the category of the spiritual disciplines of engagement and the spiritual disciplines of abstinence. And we're really good at a church of emphasizing the things of engagement, reading your Bible, praying, witnessing to someone, going to church, those type of things. In fact, those are the things in Sunday school that we got gold stars for. We came in and we said how many of those things we did. But the disciplines of abstinence, specifically the ones that people wrote about throughout history, of solitude and silence, are ones that are completely antithetical to the day that we live in. If you tell someone, okay, I'm going to go practice solitude and silence, they look at you and be like, oh, so you're going to be lazy. Because it's not what our culture rewards. Our culture does not reward getting away and spending time. But we do see this emphasized in the life of Jesus, where several times it told us he withdrew from the crowd. He even withdrew from those that were his closest followers to get away and pray and spend time alone. We see this in the created order, where on the seventh day, God rested. Now, was God tired? Does God get tired? Well, no. But it set a pattern so when his covenant people, the Israelites, he had them build in the day of the Sabbath. Now, the Israelites and the Pharisees took that much too far. And he corrected that in Mark 2.27 when he was accused of doing something on the Sabbath where he said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. God desires us at times to just be still to rest, to just stop and be still and silent with him, to enjoy his presence. There are so many needful things that we need to do that we neglect that which is most needful, to enjoy and worship in the nearness and presence of God. 
Where did God lead in Psalm 23? To lie down in green pastures and beside the still waters. For what reason? To restore our souls. And I think that's a pattern for our life. Now the second part of the equation is prayer. So presence plus prayer. We all know about prayer. We've read about prayer. We've heard sermons on prayer, how to pray, pray this formula, pray this way, and so forth. But we know we're supposed to, and I'll be the first one to admit up here that I don't pray like I should. We read things like, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much from James 5.16. And in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. And I'll tell you, that does not characterize my life at all. And I ask myself, why don't I pray? And I think the answer that I come to every time is because of pride. I feel I've got it. I can figure it out. I can work my way through it. I'm smart enough. And what's the antidote to that? I need to be humble. I feel that 1 Peter 5, 6 through 7 is a companion passage to this. And if you've got your Bible on an e-device or a paper copy, turn there with me because there's a couple things I want us to look at. It says, Humble yourselves, and parenthetically, therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, in parentheses, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Many commentators and scholars state that the original intent and the thought of this passage is carried out by placing a by, a by before casting. So in essence, this passage would read, humble yourselves by casting all your anxieties on him. I learned from a godly man once who loved to say that prayer is a declaration of dependence on God. And based on how I pray, I don't really show much dependence. Think about casting. It's really just throwing it all out there. Literally all of it. It says all of your anxieties on him. And then think about those last two words, on him. We don't just put it before him. We don't just dump it right there. But literally we put it on him so that he's carrying it and we're not. So I put this in the Stevenson version, which will never be published. But be humble by throwing everything as hard and as fast as you can on a mighty God and let him carry it because he cares for you. Be humble. How? By throwing everything as hard and as fast as you can on a mighty God and let him carry it because he cares for you. When I read that verse, I picture myself as a dumb sheep. I carry what I don't need to carry and let it worry and discourage me. That's what Christ says in Matthew 11, 28-30. Come to me, all who labor, labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Christ literally wants us to come to him so that he can carry our load for us. The Almighty God, the Great Savior, wants to be hitched to us to carry for us what we can't carry so that we can find rest. And as I was thinking about this last night, it's like trying to rope a chihuahua and an elephant together. We're the small animal that can't carry everything, but we have an amazing God who can carry whatever we put there. And why and how can we do this? In Hebrews 4:15 through 16, 
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Now looking back at Philippians 4 in reference to to prayer, and everything we are to pray with thanksgiving. We worry and fear when we don't trust that God is good enough, strong enough, or wise enough. We may even doubt that he can do anything about our situation. It can be because we don't have a high enough view of God and his power, or it can be because we have sin that is keeping us from a full fellowship with God. Praying thankfully is freeing. And it's freeing because it causes us to confess that God is in control and sovereign over everything, and that his way is best. Because God is good and only does good, and as Christians, we must constantly reaffirm that fact to ourselves and to others. But because God is good and only does good, and he's sovereign, we can be thankful for everything. And again, as I said before, not everything is good. Illness is not good. Sickness is not good. Cancer is not good. Death is not good. All these things are the enemy. But God can take anything that is not good and use it for good. God in his sovereignty has a plan. And what a burden that takes off of us that we have to try to manipulate situations into good when we can just let it go and know that God has a plan. But we choose to trust and be thankful because we believe that God is good. And finally, peace. So God's presence plus prayer equals peace. And the thing to notice is this is not an ordinary peace. It states that it is the peace of God. The peace that is an essential attribute of God. It's a peace we cannot earn, copy, or obtain by doing more and trying harder. It is God's peace and only his to share and give to us after we turn everything over to him. We get something so great by giving everything away. The messy stuff in your life, God wants that. Your crazy, stressful thoughts that drive you crazy, he wants those too. He wants your messy apartment from hoarders, and he wants to give you a beautiful Chip and Joanna Gaines house, if you'll let go of it. So what is peace? Think about how you would define it. And I sat there yesterday and I thought, okay, what, what would I characterize peace in my life? And I came up with, with this definition after wrestling with it for a while. Is that peace is not the absence of turmoil in my life, but the steadfast belief in the active presence of God in me. Peace is not the absence of turmoil in my life, but the steadfast belief in the active, active presence of God in my life. Think back to Psalm 23. Who is active in the first three verses? The psalmist or God? And if you read it, it's, it's God as the shepherd that's active. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. The psalmist isn't the one that's active. God is the one that's active. And when God is active, what follows from that? 
Even though I (coughs) walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. And as a result of God's leading and our letting us, God lead, letting God lead us, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So how as Christians are we to live in this life? And this is the part of verse 7. With a peace so radical that no one, not even us, can begin to comprehend. How do we obtain this? Through resting in God's presence and by giving everything away in prayer. And what is the result found in verse 7? A protection from fear and doubt that plagues our human fragile minds. So, back to that quote from earlier. The compelling need to make a monument to world peace and the cooperation and the ability of man to find goodness. Well, that was from the founding of the World Trade Center in 1964. And so what was supposed to be a monument to world peace quickly became the emblem of terror and lack of peace in this world. John and I went to visit the, the, the monument, um, the 9-11 memorial. And as you walked into the atrium on a big marble wall, they had that emblazoned in big gold letters. And I stood there and I thought, why would you put something like that next to something you're about to walk through the twisted steel and rubble of? It took 47 years for a monument to world peace to be destroyed by an act of terror. And as I walked through looking at pictures of those that died, the horror, the turmoil, and reliving that day in my mind, the twisted steel that they had left there, it made me actually cry that the world is looking for peace within rather than from above. As we close, man has never been able to find societal peace and never will until the Prince of Peace is ruling and reigning. However, we as believers can find and maintain individual peace, not by working and striving, but by humbly casting.